Have you ever watched a medical drama? If you have, then you know the scene well. There's been some sort of accident. The patient is in the ambulance and screaming towards the hospital. As soon as it arrives, the doctor is there to meet the ambulance right at the doors. Frantically, the, the patient is wheeled on a gurney down the hallway toward the trauma unit. The EMT, he's explaining to the doctor what has happened, the treatment, the medication that's already been administered, and whatever the patient's vitals are. They, they make it to the trauma unit, surgery begins, and all eyes focus on the heart monitor, and eventually it flatlines. The doctor calls for the paddles, trying to shock the patient back to life, and everybody waits for a few precious seconds with bated breath just to see. But the patient remains flatlined. The team is ready to give up, but inevitably there's one doctor, there's one nurse who just refuses to give up. You know that scene, don't you? It's a terrible scene to see this patient flatlining. It's an awful thing to flatline. And no, it's not just patients on hospital beds that flatline. Relationships flatline. Jobs flatline. Hope flatlines. In fact, as we conclude our series on this new normal through the book of Haggai, the nation of Israel had flatlined. Babylon had destroyed everything. Everything was in ruin. The people were led away into exile. The people were gone. The nation was gone. Hope was gone. And then God brought out the paddles. He, he shocked the heart of a Persian king to allow the people of God to return home to Jerusalem. They escaped exile. They were released from quarantine. There were signs of life but the people didn't quite know what to do yet. Hope was still fragile. And that's when Haggai entered the scene and he came on with four messages from God. And the first message was, as you're coming out of quarantine, as you're coming out of exile, what you need to focus on is displaying the presence of God. Haggai's second message was even when you're discouraged, even when you feel like giving up and throwing in the towel, continue to display the presence of God. And the third message is your motivation behind it, it's actually the most important thing. You, you, you have to be motivated out of love and out of a relationship with God to display His presence. It's not just simply doing the right thing because you think that'll make you good. The motivation of the heart is the most important thing. And you understand all three of these messages were messages of correction. And you know how it is when hope is fragile, when, you, when all you're receiving are corrections, when your yesterdays seem brighter than your tomorrows. Well, you need some hope. Because after all, sometimes hope, it's the very best medicine of all. Well, that's just what the doctor prescribed for Haggai to administer to the people in this fourth message. So, hear the words of the prophet, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, the last message of Haggai. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. 
declares the Lord of hosts. As we mention each week, the prophet, he's very specific in dating these messages. So we know he delivers his first message, he waits about two months, and then the second message comes. He waits about two more months, and then the third message comes. And the first three messages, they were all messages of correction, but it was that third message that really blindsided the people. That was the toughest message of all, the, the most difficult message of all that came. It would have been the hardest one to hear. And after that, God that same day gives the fourth message through the prophet. So there's no waiting for the fourth message. It's just the same day that he delivered the third message. But you need to understand, the first message was given to Zerubbabel, the governor, and then to Joshua, the high priest, and then to the people. The second message had the same people. The third message was given just to the people, and this fourth message is given simply to Zerubbabel, the governor. See, the, the fourth message, the reason why it's given simply to Zerubbabel is that this promise of hope will find its fulfillment not in a priestly figure, not in the people at large, but in a royal figure, in this royal lineage. And so, the message begins, and it begins with an ominous tone. I mean, the picture the prophet is painting here, it is vivid and it is horrific. I mean, all of the military and political stability of the nations they're about to be rocked. I mean, we've already seen that God is a mover and a shaker God. And he's saying here that, hey, God is going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the nations. There's going to be this violent disruption of life that is coming. And God says that he's behind it. The, the language used in this section, is, it's very reminiscent of the language used to describe the events of the Exodus. In fact, it's so similar that a Jewish audience, upon hearing these words, they would have re immediately recalled how Harrow's horse, Pharaoh's horses and riders, along with the chariots and his armies at that time, were being hurled into the Red Sea as a result of the Lord's decisive intervention. And so Haggai, he also speaks of the overthrow of royal thrones, the overthrow of royal kingdoms, the shattering of power, and the overthrow of chariots and their drivers. The similarity of this language, it's not coincidental. And why? Because God wants to remind his people that he's still in charge, that ultimately he's in charge and he's always been in charge. God was able to pull this nation out of captivity. God was able to shake the heart of a pagan king and allow his people to come home. And then he shook the heart of a pagan king again and taxed the people so that the very opposing nation would fund the building of this temple. And now this small, seemingly defenseless nation whose memories of distant yesterdays were so much brighter than what they were experiencing today they would have wondered, how are we going to survive? What happens when the nations come against us? What, how, how are we going to make it? And God says, I can do it all. You just trust me. I can do it all. I'm in charge. I have the power to shake. I have the power to overthrow. I can destroy. You know, sometimes we need to hear that too, don't we? That in the midst of all that's going on in life, and all the difficulty, and all the pain, and all the craziness, that God's in charge. That he's in control, that he can do what he wants, when he wants. He has that kind of power. But what does that mean for Israel right here? 
God says that Zerubbabel is going to be his sovereign choice. I mean, the concluding promise of the prophet is extraordinary in terms of the scope and the function that he's calling Zerubbabel to that's envisioned for Zerubbabel. This governor is singled out to play a major role in God's plans and purposes for the future of Israel. God says to Zerubbabel, I will take you. You're my servant. I have chosen you. The only previous figure in all of the nation of Israel that God spoke with that kind of language about was King David. And God is using this language again, reminiscent of King David, to describe Zerubbabel. And he's doing that to a people whose hope is on life support. To grasp the significance of, of this message, you've got to be able to peek inside the mindset of the people. This is the people. They've been allowed to return home after years of exile, decades in exile. And you would think hope is running high. And for a moment, it was. But they'd been in exile a long time. And so when they're given the option to return home, well, not everybody jumps on that option. A lot of people, in fact, the majority of the people stay behind because they build lives there. They'd established a home there. And so they, when given the option, they didn't want to go home. And so now the people who have returned, they're looking around and they're missing their neighbors. They're missing some loved ones who they've left back in Babylon. And this bright homecoming that they were looking forward to, well, it wasn't so bright after all. Everything was broken down. Everything was in rubble. It was just in pieces. I mean, where do you start? They didn't quite know where to start. We get the picture of Nehemiah when he comes and he's there and he surveys the land and he weeps over the state of the city and over the place uh, that has been their home. It's just so sad. It's tragic. See, the nation that they had left, it was still a dream. That's not what they had returned to. And so the people, they also knew the stories, these great stories of King David, a man who loved his people and served his people well, a king after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart. And they wanted another king like that. But see, they come home, they don't even have a king now. They have Zerubbabel. And sure, he was a good man, he was a good governor, that's great. But he wasn't the king. He was still appointed by the Persian king Cyrus. He was, he was a governor. They were in their homeland, and as good as Zerubbabel was, Persia was still calling the shots. And what's more, the Israelites also knew the promise of a coming Messiah who had the royal lineage of King David. But there's no royalty now. Had the promise been aborted, would the Messiah still come? And where is this royal lineage for the Messiah to come through? I mean, you understand, these people's hopes were flatlining, and they were flatlining fast. You know, it was a lot easier just to pick up the pieces and try to do some good things than to believe and to have hope that God could do impossible things. And yeah, as we look back and we see the logic-defying release from exile, and we see a pagan Persian kingdom financing the rebuilding of the temple, we can look at that and we can say, oh, you see God's hand behind so much. Why, why weren't they just filled with hope? But when you're right in the middle of it, sometimes it's easier to see what you don't have instead of what you do. Sometimes it's easier to see what you're missing out on instead of what's right 
there and you see the people who had stayed in Babylon instead of seeing the people who, who had come with you. You see the broken down buildings instead of the walls that you've built up. You see the temple that you're building and you think of Solomon's temple that once stood. You see the only throne, the only king was Persian instead of a governor who was faithful and good. And so it's easy to see what you don't have instead of seeing what you do. And we had that same issue too, don't we? I mean, we know the promises of God, how God promises peace of mind for those who guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. How God knows everything we need and He promises to provide. How God promises to give good gifts to His children. And the promises, they go on and on and on. And yet in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficult circumstances, and sometimes not even that, is it? Sometimes it's just in the midst of things not going your way that you look and you see what you don't have instead of what you do. You can see the bad instead of seeing the good. And in a sin-cursed world, you can find something bad in almost anything. Knowing that, perhaps one of God's greatest gifts to us is the gift of joy. And the people of God, as the people of God, we have this great gift that we can be joyful in all circumstances. That we're called to share this joy with others because we know God is good. And at times when things can be most difficult, when things can be most hard, in times like now when it's hard to go out and meet new people and hard to trust new people because we just want to kind of stay in our own circles, at a time when things, things aren't the way they used to be and this new normal isn't so comfortable because we want to live in a world where masks aren't needed, where you can give hugs and handshakes, and we look around and we see small businesses that have been hurt by shutting everything down and people's livelihoods that have suffered. At times like this, we the church still have to share that joy. And so we've got to be super creative in how, how do we go about meeting new people and sharing joy in a way that we can reach them. And so as our leadership team has gotten together, that's kind of where the whole idea of partnering with Rick's Frozen Custard has come from. Because here's a local business who's been in our community for years and we want to see them succeed. We want them to do well. And so that's what we're doing. We're just going to buy some gift cards from them. And we're going to encourage them that, hey, there's a church here in Portsmouth who cares about your survival, cares about your financial health, cares about this little bit of joy that some frozen custard can bring to our community. And so we're, we're going to go, we're going to buy this, help support this local business, and then we're going to mail them off to, to members in our community, members in our neighborhood, and just let them know, hey, there's a church who loves you. And right now, we want to bring a little bit of joy and some difficult time and let you know that God loves you too. And so we'll write a card, we'll send that. And if you're not involved in the, in the Rick's thing yet, you just need to know for every $5 that we get, that's what we're doing. We're going, we're supporting a local business and then we're trying to impact our neighborhood um, doing that. So just spreading a little bit of joy. You know, the Israelites, they needed a reminder too. And so in the last message of Haggai, the prophet delivers a message. And it is a message of joy and hope. You understand, when the prophet evokes all of these associations with King David, and the people, they would have been connected Zerubbabel with David. And this is going to infuse confidence with the people. 
And the point that Haggai is making is this, that Zerubbabel represents a restoration of the Davidic line of promise as a result of the divine initiative that God has, has enacted through this exile. What was lost by the tragedy of the exile will now be regained. And it will be regained first through the person of Zerubbabel. The promise, it was a promise of certainty. It wasn't dependent upon Zerubbabel's faithfulness. It wasn't dependent upon the faithfulness of the people. It was simply God saying, I will do this. It, he, it was all dependent upon the faithfulness of God. And the people knew it was certain because Haggai likens Zerubbabel to God's signet ring. Now the signet ring was, was a ring that was used to authenticate uh, legal documents or royal directives. And so, you know, there'd be some document, some important document, and then there'd be a piece of clay that was on there, and you would seal that clay with your signet ring. And then that would have the markings of the person, the emblems of the person assigned to, and then, you would, and then it would authenticate it that you know, hey, that directive came from the king because we see his stamp. The signet ring, it was, it was worn always at all times because it was so significant. You'd never be without it. It was either worn around your neck on a cord or on a finger on your right hand. So it was an important ring. And Haggai is saying, Zerubbabel, he represents the signet ring of God. He carries the authority of God. He's been marked with this divine authority. And they would have remembered, as he's seeing this, they would have remembered what God said about a previous king, King Jehoiachin. This was Zerubbabel's grandfather. He was an evil king. And how God said of him, Jehoiachin, you are the signet ring on my right hand, but I will tear it off. And not long after that, after God said that, Jehoiachin, he was killed. His uncle then became king. He served for a very short time. And then the nation of Judah was exiled off into Babylon. It didn't take long. And it seemed as if God had kept his promise. The signet ring had been torn off. And the people had thought perhaps it was discarded forever. Perhaps this line that the Messiah would come through is just gone now. And then here's Zerubbabel. Here's the hope through Zerubbabel. And God says through the prophet, this signet ring has been restored. Because you see, God is a God who redeems. He can take the deepest, the darkest, the most painful, and he can redeem it for good. But the fullness of this redemption, it would have to wait. Because Zerubbabel, he didn't usher in some kind of reinstitution of the Judean monarchy. He didn't lead his people to some kind of military power. They, we didn't see the other Gentile nations of the earth at that time just kind of be shaken and so that Israel would become the king player on the world stage. That didn't happen. There was no control that was seized by Zerubbabel. In fact, Zerubbabel never even became king. In fact, after this prophecy, Zerubbabel seemingly vanishes into obscurity. We're not really sure what happened to him. Perhaps the Persians heard of this prophecy and they feared that Zerubbabel would lead some kind of insurrection against Persia. And so they had Zerubbabel removed. Maybe Zerubbabel served quietly in office for a few more years and then retired. Perhaps Zerubbabel died in office. We don't know, but people love to speculate. 
What we do know is Zerubbabel did not usher in any kind of triumphant period of Judean achievement. It, it didn't happen under his leadership. It didn't happen immediately following this prophecy. And so this has caused some people to read the book of Haggai and say, well, Haggai's message was a complete failure. The prophet got it wrong. However, that misunderstands the text. Just like David carried this notion of a lineage beyond himself, a lineage that transcended simply the historical person of David, so it is with Zerubbabel. The prophet said numerous times in this book, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil. And everyone knew what that meant. Because in those days, people knew the genealogy of the royal family. And if Zerubbabel was the son of Sheatil, well, that meant he was the grandson of Jehoiachin. And if he was a, the grandson of Jehoiachin, well then, he was of the line of King David. And the lineage has been restored. And so there is this hope. It remains of the coming Messiah who will even shake the hearts of Gentile nations. This Messiah is coming. And so Haggai and the people listening, they would have had no way to anticipate the amount of time that would have transpired between Zerubbabel and the 600 years roughly until the coming of Christ. But to a people whose hope was quickly flatlining, they had a reason to believe again. They had a reason to hope again. You understand, it's no coincidence that when Jesus did arrive and Matthew and Luke, those gospel writers, began to record the genealogy of Jesus, they both mentioned Zerubbabel, that the promise had indeed remained true. You know, we look around today and in many ways we see a world flatlining. We know things are not right. We know things should not be this way. And hope seems to be in short supply. But we remember another promise. A promise that that long-awaited Messiah, that he will come again. That he's going to make all things right. This Messiah from the line of Zerubbabel, from the line of David, we're told that King Jesus will come again. And when he does, he'll make all things new. Everything will be good, will be perfect. And just like the people of Haggai's day believed, oh, it's, it's probably going to happen real soon. In our generation's rubble, he's going to lead it. Maybe, maybe his son will be the Messiah. Well, so too in our generation, we always think that today is the day or, or this is the generation. Jesus is coming in my lifetime. And that may be, we just don't know. But you understand that's the power of hope. That's what hope does to a people, that in a world that seems to be flatlined, the good physician is not setting down his paddles and walking away. And you understand that's the message of Haggai, that you display God's presence continually because the good physician is not setting down his paddles and walking away. He's still present. He's still in charge. Hope still reigns. Heavenly Father, Help us to hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.